0: Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the Gills Talk Podcast. I am your host, Kristen Kibblehouse, and today we have Gills Club Scientist Dr. Jody Rummer. Now, this is an information-packed episode, so we are gonna be learning about the Epaulette shark today, the reef shark, why are fish and sharks alike so athletic? So I am just going to hop right into the interview today so we can all learn about Jodi's research and what she is learning about these two incredible sharks in our oceans off of Australia. Welcome, Dr. Jody Rummer, to the Gills Talk. We have had so much back and forth trying to get this scheduled. I think it's almost two months now, but I'm so happy that we've been able to connect um, all the way from Australia today for our interview. So welcome.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: So for our listeners that maybe not be familiar with you, you've been part of our Gills Club science team now for many years. Um, And I I remember meeting you at the Gills Club Symposium, oh gosh, I think 2017 now, I think that that was when that symposium was. So I know you've been really involved now for over five years or so now. So for people that are not familiar with your work, if you want to explain what your research is focused on.
1: Yeah, and I, I would like to highlight that when I came around to to Boston for the Gill's Club Symposium, um, I believe it was called Shark Tales, appropriately, yeah. uh, Women Making Waves. I just found that to be such an inspiring and motivating event, and you know, here I am there with my career already in you know full force, but looking around and seeing all these. You know, budding young scientists, and so much motivation and inspiration. It was it was a lot of fun, and of course, we had the educational outreach day as well, and just such a great organization. I was super proud and honored to be a part of that. So um, yeah, I guess just to give the audience a little bit of background about what I do, I have researched an array of topics all around the idea of of fish and physiology. So anywhere from buoyancy to exercise, to how fish get oxygen from their environment, transported around their body, deliver it to their tissues so that they can be amazing at exercise and they can be amazing athletes, like I like to call them, Um, how they maintain performance during stress And I combine the topics of physiology with other topics like ecology and evolution so that I can address really important issues with respect to conservation, such as the effects of climate change and other human-induced problems that fish populations and ecosystems in the marine environment are facing today. I do a lot of focus on coral reefs. I'm based here, as you mentioned, in Australia, but right in the center of the Great Barrier Reef. So I'm perfectly positioned to do some pretty amazing work here on coral reef fishes, not just the bony fishes, a lot of work with sharks and rays as well. And ultimately, I'm looking at their potential to adjust their bodies, acclimate, and eventually hopefully adapt to the new conditions they're facing in their habitats with stressors, with climate change.
0: I mean, I love that your work is so interdisciplinary that you're really using a lot of concepts, a lot of factors to be able to... I should say move along your research if it is with different types of bony fish, sharks, rays, or whatever that it may be. And I mean, the Great Barrier Reef, what an amazing research area to be able to work in. As well, especially as if I'm sure people are familiar or maybe not, the Great Barrier Reef is a constantly changing environment with global warming and ocean acidification going on in that area. So looking at then those species that you do focus on there, like what are some of those species then you are studying throughout the reef?
1: Well, not only has my team looked at your more typical reef fish, a lot of the damselfishes and cardinal fishes, those very bright and colorful little dynamic species that you would see darting in and out of the matrix of the reef if you're out there snorkeling. We've done a lot of work with those species, Um, a lot of work with Nemo, of course, Uh, one of our icons of the Great Bayer Reef here, but really, you know, we're, we're looking at 2,300 kilometers of continuous coral reef ecosystem along the East coast of Australia. It, it is the best office I could have um, imagined for myself ever. And so with the bony fishes, yeah, a lot of them we work with because they're easy to work with in captivity. We can do controlled laboratory experiments where we are simulating a lot of these types of conditions that you mentioned associated with climate change, such as ocean warming, such as ocean acidification or the increase in carbon dioxide that the oceans are experiencing, which decreases the ocean's pH or causes it to be more acidic. Also ocean deoxygenation or low oxygen conditions often referred to as hypoxia in the marine environment so, sort of that three factor trifecta of, of climate change stressors that these coral reef fishes are facing. In addition to that, some things we might not be thinking about that Nemo and his friends are facing on the reef would be the increase in sediments and turbidity that are coming from agricultural and industrial runoff from the land. And so, Everyone wants to live on the beach, on the coast. But once we start building along the coastlines, we are taking away that natural infrastructure like mangroves and lagoons and and estuaries that protects not only the land from dirt and, and soil going into the ocean, but protects the ocean from all of that dirt and sediment and soil from getting into the ocean as well. And so that natural coastline, that natural protective area, if we take it down and start building high rises and hotels and and stuff like that, then we start to get an increase in a lot of these land to sea issues as well. So we have looked a lot at the increase in turbidity and sediment in the water and how that affects Nemo and his friends. It's it's often a problem in different ports as well. You know, we're shipping things all around the world constantly between countries, and we have to have ports in order to accept and let those goods come in and out of our countries. So once we are building those ports and maintaining those shipping areas, that sediment creates a problem for the fish as well. So other stressors, sound, noise, boat traffic, artificial light. We're looking at a lot of stressors that these fish are facing and no one stressor in isolation. They're kind of facing them all at the same time. And so we'll choose species that, again, we can work with really well in the laboratory, smaller species that don't eat a lot. They're not going to cost us too much money to keep in the (laughs) laboratory, you know, not like a a you know a teenager eating you know three pizzas for dinner, and then we do a lot of work with with our cartilaginous fish friends as well, such as shark species and ray species. Uh, one of our key species that we work with here on the Great Barrier Reef is the epaulette shark, mm-hmm. and the epaulette shark is a small benthic or sort of bottom dwelling shark species but it lives in the shallows. It prefers the reef flats, really shallow, complex reef flat environment. And we choose this species also because it's a small shark species. We can keep it in the laboratory, but also because it lives in really shallow, challenging habitats already. So we think that you know, the, the phrase, the animal is a product product of its environment. We think that it might be able to teach us a lot about some of the key traits that sharks might need to have to cope with challenging conditions in their habitats that are coming with climate change. So if we look at a tough species, start to pick apart all the different neat characteristics that that species has, then we can start to maybe apply those ideas to other species that might not be living in such challenging habitats to see what their capacity is for coping with stress. The other cool thing about the epaulette shark is that it
0: walks. I was just so going to ask about that.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's it's often referred to as the walking shark. There are some really great videos on YouTube that you can look up where David Burrow is. Is over here on the Great Bay of Reef and checking out our friend the epaulette shark as it walks from reef flat to reef flat. You know, we still don't really understand how and why it can just get out of its small little reef flat pool and walk to a new one. Um, maybe it's temperature, maybe there are other challenging environmental conditions that make it want to just get out and move to more favorable conditions. We haven't quite figured that out yet, but we do know that this shark is really, really tough. It's pretty cool that it can just get up and walk away if it doesn't like a condition too. And then finally, it's an egg layer. So that means that we can watch the entire life history of development in the laboratory if we want to. We can rear eggs under different types of conditions. We can put a little bit of a light behind the egg and we can see the embryo developing in that egg case, often called a mermaid's purse. We can see that embryo developing, we can see it moving its tail, moving its gills, we can watch the yolk of the egg start to decrease in size as that little embryo is using that yolk for nourishment as it's developing. And we can even monitor the rate at which it's chomping up that yolk and using it for food. And then also monitor how long it takes for that embryo to grow enough to hatch out of that egg case and a lot of other types of conditions that are going on while that embryo is developing. So it's a pretty amazing species for a shark species to investigate both in the laboratory, and we do work a lot with that shark species in the field as well. We've got a really great field site that's associated with the University of Queensland and the southern part of the Great Barrier Reef, which is the cooler part that (laughs) the lower temperatures of the Great Barrier Reef, not that they get that cool, but um, in the southern end, and a really fantastic um, hot spot for the epaulette shark, so we can investigate them in the field as well, and they only grow to be maybe just over a meter or three feet long in total, like that would be the biggest that we ever really see, so pretty, pretty small shark, easy to keep in captivity, and their mouth is on the underside of their body as well. More, more similar to like a stingray. So they're not a, a big
0: bitey chumpy shark, like your white sharks over there. So they're pretty good in that respect too. That's one of my favorite facts that I give to youth in programs is about the epaulet shark. One that they walk with their fins, but then two is that they have, I think it's like, uh, is it 30? 30, like it's like 30 or 36 rows of teeth. Like it's an incredible amount of rows that they have. I forget the exact amount. You know, I don't know. (laughs) I don't know how many rows of teeth they have. Had enough to chomp
1: onto my arm. I had a a rash Uh guard on a couple of months ago and was releasing one into, I don't know, maybe six inches of water. It was super, super shallow. And she just wasn't having it. And she turned around and grabbed on like her, little teeth must have just snagged onto the side of my rash guard on my right wrist and just, you know, got a little bit of the skin. Okay. Yeah. It hurt a little bit, but you know, still it's, it's not a shark bite really. (laughs) But the other funny thing is that these sharks don't go into tonic immobility when you turn them belly side up, like other sharks do, they just do this like rolling like death roll type thing, like you would associate with an alligator or a crocodile. And so if you can imagine, she's got this little bit of my rash guard sleeve in her mouth with these tiny little teeth, lots of them, but tiny little teeth. And it's, she's just rolling and rolling and rolling. So I've got this twisted sleeve of my rash guard thinking, okay, I have to unwind you here. Yeah. So yeah, they, they do have a lot of teeth. They're very tiny, but they're more like scratchy than bitey. if mm-hmm.
0: that make sense? I think that's just one of those risks you have to take working with a wild animal and also just working with them out in, in, in the field. It, it doesn't matter if it's a white shark or a three foot epaulet. It know. comes with the territory. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, so I can imagine when you are trying to Um, When you do your lab studies and you are trying to, you know, almost predict how the water is going to be changing if it is a year from now or five years from now to see how these stressors are going to affect them like what is that process of predicting that type of way then for you then to test that in the lab.
1: No, that's a great question. How do we know what conditions in the oceans or on the coral reef or even in a small little reef habitat off of the island? Mm -hmm. How do we know how those conditions are going to change and over what time scale? Well, luckily we have amazing scientists around the world that do that for a living. I don't. And so we really do rely on them and their modeling capacity to use mathematic models with all kinds of data loggers that are around the world in all different types of habitats and monitoring temperature and pH and oxygen and the currents and you know taking into consideration depth and cloud cover there in the united states noaa is a really really big organization that does a lot of that. And they are not just known in the United States, but globally renowned for their capacity to monitor such large data sets in terms of what the oceans are doing. And then all of these scientists get together into a panel, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change to put all these data together and use all these mathematic models to make those types of predictions what's going to happen by the middle of this century so the year 2050 what's going to happen by the end of this century so the end of, of 20 what year is it <laughs> the end of <laughs> two, the end of the 21st century so mm-hmm. around the year 2100 <laughs> I think with With COVID, no one knows what year it is anymore. (laughs) So we are very lucky that all of us scientists are able to sort of collaborate with one another and really rely on each other's expertise and the technology that's available through all of these massive institutions around the world to use data that have been collected historically and are currently being collected And of course, harnessing the amazing technology that's available to us now to put all that information together to make those predictions. Now, we do have natural environmental phenomena that occur on regular basis. A lot of the listeners may have heard of El Niño and La Niña, and these are naturally occurring conditions where different currents around the oceans are moving in different ways and can exacerbate some of these types of conditions that we might be seeing, say, on the Great Barrier Reef, might be um, making warming conditions much more severe or maybe exacerbating storm and cyclone and hurricane conditions. And what we're seeing is that even though those are naturally occurring patterns that have been going on for eons with climate change, climate change is almost supercharging the atmosphere and putting way more energy into the atmosphere and therefore the oceans than we ever really understood before in human history. So that's another element that all of these scientists are really putting together into this model to try to understand how all these factors are affecting what the ocean conditions are going to look like.
0: It's, there's so much that goes into one thing, <laughs> you know, but I think, I mean, and it, it's, it's helping you with your research, but then someone in the Pacific ocean, I'm, I'm just naming an ocean here, you know, is then that they're using that for their own research. So it is all important. And it just shows how like interdisciplinary everything truly is then to, to figure out one thing or another but I know that your research has been ongoing now for the last few years with this so I'm sure you've had many discoveries along the way so what would be your favorite discovery so far with all of this
1: oh that's a really tough question what's my favorite discovery that's like asking me what what's my favorite species to work with (laughs) all of them and for different (laughs) reasons I guess as well I am here based in Australia. I started my position here in Australia in 2011. So I've been here just over 10 years now. It's been really, really amazing, not only to work here on the Great Barrier Reef, but I've also been running a pretty massive shark research program in French Polynesia as well, uh, since 2013. And that's the Shark program. Most of our shark research takes into consideration physiology. So the inner workings of the organism from blood flow to cardiac or heart function, to muscle performance and swimming and metabolism and energy use and all of those factors to really understand what kinds of stressors might be impacting those key factors uh, in sharks. Mm-hmm. And and how that might impact their ability to survive and thrive in their habitats. So that's PhysioShark. And I would say that's definitely one of my, you know, most proud research programs because it has come with a lot of challenges being able to develop this research program, in a different country and with different resources and learning new habitats and new organisms and, and kind of going through all the challenges with that. But, With that research program in French Polynesia, we've really focused on newborn sharks, which I think has just been absolutely amazing. Uh, We think of newborn sharks, okay, a newborn baby is is pretty vulnerable, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, if if you think of a newborn baby human, they don't know how to talk, they can't communicate, they can't really even move around very well, super awkward. Uh, they have to learn pretty fast. But you know, a newborn human is, is pretty well taken care of usually by parents and newborn sharks, not so much. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we we think of, of shark nurseries, and so those are some of the areas that we've been focusing on in, in this um area of French Polynesia. Shark nurseries, okay, that sounds safe. That sounds like a really good environment for a baby shark to grow up in. But even those shark nurseries aren't as safe and as, I guess, hospitable as you might want, you know, if you were to send your baby to a nursery. (laughs) Those shark nurseries are really shallow. They're close to the coast of the island, so they're influenced by human activity, fishing, being super shallow. They're going to get really warm, very low in oxygen, pH changes. So a lot of those similar environmental changes that are also occurring with climate change that these newborn sharks have to deal with as babies in order to grow up to become a healthy adult. So they're kind of already doing it. And so I guess that's why we chose that ecosystem to investigate, again, looking at a a species or a life stage of a species that's already coping with some pretty challenging conditions and finding that they're they're doing pretty well in that respect. Um, And their main challenges, of course, being in that early stage, starvation and predation. So if they can grow as fast as possible and stay protected and start learning how to hunt and learning how to not get eaten, then that's pretty key uh, for these species and these populations, especially at this very, very early stage. And so that's been really, really neat um, discovery for us as a team, finding that these early life stages, these newborn reef sharks that are living in these challenging nursery habitats have to be pretty tough early on. Again, you know, choosing an organism for the question that you want to ask and answer and and choosing um, an organism that you can work with pretty easily. Uh, Newborn reef sharks are about foot and a half long or so, 52 centimeters. Um, so they're, they're still pretty small, still pretty easy to work with. They, they are a bit more bitey than our um, epaulette sharks here. Yeah, I guess that's been a pretty amazing finding, uh, just really delving into that research program and all of the challenges that have come with that research program as well. It's also been really, really neat not only here working on the Great Barrier Reef, you know, arguably one of the best protected coral reef ecosystems on the planet, or even marine ecosystems for that matter, but working in French Polynesia, which is the largest shark sanctuary on the planet. 4.8 million square kilometers of, of area that's protected from any shark fishing, shark finning, any type of exploitation for sharks whatsoever. I never knew so, that that's pretty phenomenal. And that's pretty special to be able to work in an environment like that.
0: Kind of going back to when they're babies and how much that they already just have to know right off the bat. And I think that's something that is surprising fact to most people that maybe do not know the most about sharks. And it's something that is a question that I get a lot as well, that They think that when mom shark gives birth, it's very similar to then whales or dolphins and that, you know, they take care of their young, or at least the young stay around. And it's quite the opposite, (laughs) you know, they, it is a best of luck. Sometimes they don't, I mean, if it is with a, with an egg laying shark, they don't even know, they don't even see them, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, it just shows that like how hardy of an animal the shark is that they are born already with these abilities to hunt, to adapt to ever-changing, you know, habitats that they might be in, like you said, in those shallow waters. And I think it's, you know, just that sign of like how evolution can be just so helpful to one species to be able to figure this all out. But I want to go back to when I asked you about your favorite discovery, you said it's like picking a favorite shark. And now I got (laughs) to (laughs) ask, what is it? Oh, it's 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 like you know
1: picking your favorite child too you just don't ask a scientist that it's just not fair <laughs> um yeah I it would be a toss-up very much so between the epaulette shark and the black tip reef shark and and for the reasons you were just mentioning as well it just especially because we are examining a lot of the early life stages of both of these species with my team, Um, seeing those embryos develop in the eggs with the epaulette sharks, it is such a cool experience. And, you know, we've done heaps of work at that early life stage and watching that whole progression, even, you know, waiting for the females to lay eggs and wondering if they're going to be viable and, and fertilized. And it's just really, really cool. I also just love how tough the epaulette shark is. You know, they can survive without oxygen for four hours, which is, to put that into perspective, you know, the, the world record breath-holding free diving. Um, individual is like 11 minutes or so which is phenomenal for a human Um, I don't want to take away from that at all but this shark is so tough four hours with zero oxygen so their toughness their um, you know really really neat life history across development they're beautiful shark species mm-hmm. as well. They've got these big round circles on the sides of their cheeks, almost that are uh, resemble the epaulette symbol that was in early military military uniforms. And that's hence their name. And they've also got a lot of spots and band coloration patterns on their body that is also unique to each individual, like a fingerprint. So I think that that's pretty neat as well. They're ability to just wiggle in and out of tiny little nooks and crannies of the reef is, is pretty amazing. And then I guess with the black tip reef shark as newborns and, you know, we've been lucky to capture in our evening sampling for our research, what we think might've been babies that were born that day or within the, within 24 hours. Wow. So, these are the tiniest, you know, and they're just perfect. You think of a a new newborn baby human and their skin is so perfect, you know, like no sun damage, no scars or scratches or anything like that. And you know, that's kind of like a newborn um, reef shark as well. They don't even have their dermal denticles, their you know, their scales, mm-hmm. they're they're not really formed yet. So they're they're still really soft, actually. They're not that sandpapery feel that you usually associate if you sort of pat a shark in a backwards direction and sort of feels like sandpaper. Mm-hmm. When they're freshly born like that, <laughs> they don't feel like that yet. <laughs> and yeah, no scars their coloration is is just pristine and and they're pretty naive too you know we talked about how sharks 450 million years of evolutionary history they've got to be like good immediately they've got to learn how to be a shark immediately well I would say that you know in the first week of life for a newborn reef shark they're still a little dumb <laughs> <laughs> to be honest. Figure it out. <laughs> so it's just, you know, it's very, it's a very sweet life stage for these newborns. Um, so I don't, you can't make me choose. Please
0: don't make me choose.
1: It's like choosing my children.
0: <laughs> I won't, I won't, but I've never heard the, the upload shark can withstand oxygen for the four hours or that the black tip reef shark, they're almost, they're still smooth when they are first born that those dermal denticles are not really fully developed yet so see learning things as we are going on today I love it but obviously I'm sure is the people that are listening are hearing and I've known for a while you are just so passionate about your work sharks our oceans everything is this always been your path have you always been like this is what I'm going to do or was there something else before you getting into this full world of science and research
1: no this is what it's been um I don't know, I'd have to ask my mom, but yeah, I'm, I'm pretty certain that this is how it's always been with me. I know that um, you, know, you couldn't get me out of the water at the you know sort of end of, end of swimming season. Uh, when I was growing up, uh, my, my parents got me a mask and snorkel very early in life and I learned, well, I wanted to breathe underwater. I was certain that if I just tried hard enough, I could <laughs> breathe underwater. Um, And then the mask and snorkel made it happen for me. And so, and then, yeah, just immersing myself in, you know, beautiful documentaries on television and, you know, Netflix wasn't around at that time. Um, And, but nowadays, wow, you know, we have so many visual resources to be able to get inspired by the underwater world. And we can be out there snorkeling on on the Great Barrier Reef or coral reefs or other marine ecosystems worldwide and see for ourselves. So I guess it was a combination of just falling in love with the underwater world as just this mysterious place that was, it was so foreign to me. I grew up in the middle of the United States, like surrounded by cornfields. You know, the ocean was so foreign to me growing mm-hmm. up and, you know, now I'm, you know, literally 20 steps as I look out my window, 20 steps from the ocean and, you know, right where the Great Barrier Reef is. So quite a shift. And then I guess with the physiology, you know, I often talk about my study specimens as my little athletes because I study physiology and I really, you know, I've, I've always loved sports and I've always just really revered athletic performance and, you know, the Olympics and, you know, big sporting events. I've just always admired elite athletes and being able to sort of combine that interest with the the marine biology I do with, with sharks and other fishes. It's, just, it's perfect, really. It is absolutely the perfect career.
0: I love that. And I, I love that it's always been something for you and you were able to, I mean, like you said, bleh middle of America cornfields to Australia and the Great Barrier Reef like what an amazing story for you so since it's always been this what is advice then that you would give to your younger self
1: I think that you know the youth and adolescents that are growing up today have okay so many more resources available to you to you know, get online and check out what people are doing and get inspired, look for role models. Because to be honest, I, when I was watching those documentaries and specials on television growing up, I did not see anyone that looked like me today. I didn't see successful female marine biologists doing the type of work I'm doing today to be able to look up to and say, hey, I want, I want to be like her. I can be like her. Um, and so it's really important for me in my career to be that role model and to be that face and voice of what it means to be a scientist, a female scientist uh, in, in today's world, that you can, you can do anything you want to do. And it doesn't matter where you grew up. What uh, what your background is, um, your cultural, uh, sexual identity, religion—none of that will impede you. We want to you know advocate for as much diversity and equity and, and justice and inclusion in science today than ever before, because. we're facing we're facing world problems that we've never faced before and the more insight the more creativity the more passion we can get from all different walks of life all different backgrounds then the better suited we're going to be to to have a better world and to to start to solve some of these problems we're facing as well and I guess um, just really harnessing that passion and getting outdoors in some cases, getting underwater, we protect what we love. So the more we're able to fall in love with an ecosystem or a species, or even a, a physiological process—if we're, you know, getting super geeky with, <laughs> with the physiology that I do—I um, love oxygen transport. <laughs> We, we do protect what we love. So, you know, you think of national parks and um, shark sanctuaries and marine protected areas and species that are being protected and, and species that we fall in love with. Uh, that's, that's how it happens. And advocating for that is super important in my opinion as well
0: thank you for one, for that answer. That was incredible. But then two, I, I thank you again, because I know you say that, you know, you are wanting to be that role model and you are that role model. And I think that, you know, when I first met you five years ago, yes, five years ago now, like you definitely put an impression on me. I was just getting my start in my career at that point. And, just from other people that I've met throughout that, that weekend. So you are making a difference and you already, you, you're doing that already. So just, Thank you so much. Yeah, you're welcome. You're very welcome. Um, so before I do let you go, your social media is you, your lab for anyone then to be able to follow you on. Finding us on social media. Um, we've
1: been really lucky that during a lot of our big projects, we've had some, incredibly talented photographers, cinematographers, storytellers out with us helping to document our stories. Um, In one of our years, we had Tom Berius out with us, who produced an eight-minute documentary about the PhysioShark Research Program. You can Google PhysioShark and you can find it out there and see, you know, Eight minutes what we're all about in terms of the work that we're doing with baby sharks in french polynesia and um, it debuted at the wildlife and conservation film festival and about five or six other film festivals around the world which we're super proud of we also do have a really good social media presence um, our website physioshark.org jodyrummer.com physioshark and Rummer Doty on Instagram. And you can find Physio Shark on Facebook as well. Lots online. You know, we're pretty lucky that we have so many resources with social media and and the internet to be able to constantly be inspired. um, And a lot of very talented photographers and storytellers that work with us to help us tell our story and help us protect what we
0: love. Thank you so much for today. Um, This was so great to be able to learn more about what you've been doing and to catch up as well. So thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Gills Talk podcast. Please remember to rate, subscribe, and review. And as always, remember to stay curious, stay inspired, and always learn. And we'll catch you on the next episode. Bye, everyone.